0: Hey there. Here we are in Kings Cross outside Depot Point. I'm with Tyler Staten who's just done some teaching with our staff team that was so immense. We managed to press record um, and we want to sort of like give it away to KXC so the whole family can be in on the learning um, But I didn't really tee up um, The session properly so we're just standing outside Depo and, and want to basically ask him Essentially how this journey of the Nazarite vow began which is what the session really was about About holiness and purity so just talk us through the beginning of, of the story
1: Yeah so a couple of years ago, you'll, you'll learn my part of the story as you listen to what I shared with the staff team, but several years back, another pastor who's a friend of both Pete and I, Darren Rousen, was here in London, happened to be at dinner with Pete and a few other friends, and Pete actually doesn't know this part of the story, but as they were sitting at dinner, um, they had a quick pray together, and... Pete just looked across the table and was like, "Darren, I think I have a word for you. I'm seeing, I see you a couple of years from now, but you, your hair is long and wild, like a Nazarite." And Darren went away and was like, what on earth is a Nazarite? And so he looked it up in the scripture. And if you're not familiar, uh, the Nazarites were a group of people within the nation of Israel who took a series of vows that essentially kept them in the same condition that the high priest would get into the purification rites before entering the Holy of Holies once a year. So, the Nazarites were this group of people that just lived by, like, ready to enter the Holy of Holies all year round, and that was meant to make their lives into a prophecy to the nation of Israel. So, they they were walking, talking symbols of God's covenant to give His presence to His people. And that led on this whole wild journey that touched Darren and his church in L.A., and then myself and Trinity Grace in New York, and now has come back around uh, here to King's Cross.
0: Just mention what you said at Seek first on Thursday night, the difference between symbolism and legalism.
1: Yeah, so I I think it's important when thinking about the Nazarite vow or any kind of fasting, that fasting is not about legalism. It's about symbolism. So God's blessing does not come to rest in a more powerful way when we restrain certain appetites in our lives. But actually, the motive for fasting is to make our lives into a symbol. So the whole motive that drove someone to take the Nazarite vow, to stop cutting their hair, to abstain from alcohol, Called to avoid contact with the dead wasn't because they thought they would be nearer to God if they did. It was because I want my life to be a living prophecy to the nation of Israel, a reminder of the God who's made a covenant with his people. And so that really drove me that I want my life to be a symbol in Brooklyn of something different. I felt like God was speaking to me, you know, Tyler, you've used your life as a pastor for 10 years, basically to show people you can, uh, follow Jesus really sincerely and pretty much live like everybody else and now it's time to use your life to show that there is a way of holiness that actually is a more abundant and joyful way to
0: live so this is the teaching series from our staff, uh, not teaching series, the teaching session from our staff team, we're aware that this is low quality, you could hear cars drive past Um, so it's a low quality but we want everyone at the church to be able to hear this Um, so yeah, here's the session, God bless so essentially you started out with this journey. We we had that conversation on Skype, and we then joined in this journey that God was doing across the pond in your church. Um, so we did that series War War of Desires, um, but it came off that comment of you know you sent in God say to you I need you know you to purge yourself of the idols of Brooklyn if you're going to minister to the people of Brooklyn. Um, so just give us a bit of the back story to the Nazarite bow. Um, what it's done in you some of this you shared in the seek first um, so just repeat that because not everyone was there um, and then what, what's been rolling out and what you sense is like almost to come as you kind of look through the lens of the kind of prophetic what you think this is leading to yeah so
1: I'll just start with um, how I ended up living this way for this year which we we're talking about a bit at breakfast but there's um There's something very human and very divine about it. The the very human part is I was traveling to California uh, to go on a trip with Pete and a few other pastors. And the night before I left, so my wife and kids were going to Nashville, where they're from, uh, just to get away for a holiday at the same time. And that night before, we just... Did that awesome thing that you do occasionally as a married couple, which is start an argument while lying in bed. <laughs> and um, that night I had had a couple of cocktails. And I'm laying next to my wife, and we, we get in this argument that goes for about an hour. And then we both just realize I'm not entirely sure what we're what this was about when it began. It's certainly not about anything meaningful now. And we just kind of went to bed. She had to get up super early in the morning. I helped get her in a cabin. It was just like this horrible feeling of, I really didn't want to say goodbye for a week like that. And so then I'm, I'm just, I, I pray when walking quite often, based, as you know, since I was very young. And so then I I just just go on a walk, and I was praying, and and I started to feel like, you know, I am more short-tempered after I've had alcohol. Maybe I should just stop drinking alcohol. And I sincerely don't believe I have any sort of problem with alcohol, Mm. um, just to clarify. So it's not like that. I wasn't drunk. (laughs) it, It just was like, you know, some guards in me come down and... I don't think that would have gone so poorly last night if I had just had water. And so that was sort of what began this train of thought. And and I thought, God, are are you asking me to give up drinking alcohol? And then another note that should be said about fasting, just in a very human way, is that I'm one of those people that tends to have like a bit of an intense personality. So any way to like live with greater intensity for a defined period of time, I'm sort of into it. And, um, And so then I started just to question like, well, I'd actually fasted alcohol to start the new year and then given up alcohol for Lent and it had been two weeks since Lent. So I'm like, I've only drank alcohol for two weeks in 2018. God, are you really speaking to me about this? Or am I just, like, two weeks out of living in some kind of fast, and now I'm talking myself into something <laughs> again? And so I just said, God, if this is you, then I just need you to speak to me about it again. But I I repent of my shortness with my wife the night before. And, like, text her an apology, I sort of think, went on with it. So then taking flight to California, I get there. The first night that I'm there, um, I had a dream. It was... It was one of the most vivid dreams that I've ever had in my life. And I actually believe that it was demonic, um, but sort of a warning kind of dream. And essentially, at the heart of it was, um, you're living with something that is going to destroy you. Or you can let go of it, and I will purify you. And so I woke up just really shaken from it. And um, Gav happened to be sleeping Right at the foot of my bed, another <laughs> bed that night, and, um, and, and there was this. We this one other roommate named Darren, and Darren says to me the following morning, he was like, "Hey, man, um, did you by chance wake up at 3:30 a.m. last night on the dot?" And I was like. In fact, I did. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I did too. And I saw that the bathroom light was on and I just had a really strong sense that you just had a dream and God was speaking to you through it. So I just sat up in my bed and began to pray for you. I've never met this guy except the night before. And I was like, that's pretty wild because I do think I had a dream uh, through which God was speaking to me. And I was so shaken by it that I, I went in the bathroom to turn the light on and began to pray. And so then we, we started talking and he... And I started sharing this stuff with him about this argument with my wife about this kind of lingering thing related to alcohol. And he was like, okay, I think I have something maybe I'm supposed to share with you. But I'm not going to yet because I don't want to project my story onto yours. But he lives sober. um, And there's a lot of reasons for that in his life. So then we go on and basically over the course of that week, he is who introduces me to the Nazarite vow, which is in Numbers chapter 6. And he at a previous, about a year prior, had um, spent some time living by the Nazarite vow. And God was just speaking to me so clearly through it that basically all day long we were spending time in prayer and discussion and it was the sort of thing that normally I'd be exhausted from consuming information about God. (laughs) And at night I I purchased this book and I'm like reading a book on Kindle about the Nazarite vow. Staying up really late at night in my little cot and um, God was speaking to me so clearly through it. And then all of these different words began to come about. So what started with an argument with my wife. God began to speak to me through it. And yeah, the, the thing that I was sharing with Pete about was I just felt like God was showing me everything that is robbing the people you minister to of the full life I intend for them is also in you. And so you have some gifts that allow you to speak into it and maybe have decreased its hold on you a little bit, but you have no authority in the Spirit because you have not allowed these things to lose their grip on you. And the Nazarite vow is not a magic vow. It is a pathway for you to allow the idols of the land of Brooklyn to lose their grip on you. And it's not actually for your preaching. It's not for your outward ministry, it's for your internal life. And then I will use it in your outward ministry. And so I've been through quite a few seasons um, related to the Nazarite vow. Do am going to just keep going? Yeah, on? keep going. Okay. So I've been through quite a few different seasons related to it. And I kind of viewed um, the last nine months in chapters. So I'll just kind of break down for you the, the chapters and the way that I think God's been speaking to me. And then hopefully there will be little pieces of this that that may be helpful. But um, at first, I I genuinely just feel like God was teaching me this lesson, recovering the joy of ordinary life. Mm -hmm. I began to have a longing for something I had when I was a child and then lost, which was the ability to be fully content and alive, unaided by any outside substance or experience. So, for instance, I could remember as a kid, like running around, on a lawn, and just being absolutely elated. (laughs) And I just thought, you know, in order to get anywhere near that feeling, I now need, like, a burger, a beer, (laughs) and a movie afterwards. And, And that's how I get as close as I can to that. And I have lost the ability to have true joy in ordinary life. And the pathway back is to learn contentment. Contentment is so beautiful, but it is, it's is—it's hard to learn because the only way to find contentment is to strip yourself of things and feel like you're starving for a period of time until you learn to be content without those things. So I, I just began to pray every day, God, will you teach me the joy of ordinary life again? And I had this growing longing in me that I wanted to taste of the joy of ordinary life more than I wanted to... Um, basically cheat on the fast that I was doing, which I sort of skipped. I mentioned the other night, here's what the Nazareth vow is, just in case you don't know. It's um, you don't drink alcohol, you don't cut your hair, you don't come in contact with the dead. So I stopped drinking alcohol, I stopped cutting my hair, and that was something of really your outward appearance. And then I also chose to add simplicity to the coming in contact with the dead part. I just thought, what is only spiritually killing me there is no spiritual life i draw from it for for me personally not for the world and it had to do with things like buying clothing different things like this and and it was basically just more ways for me to say like not my outward appearance i'm not going to live based on that anymore Um, And, man, my hair has been through some strange things. I can attest to that for sure. There's a period of time where Nick was like, hey, man, what are you going to tell the church about your hair? (laughs) like a public statement. (laughs) Um, But so then I, I just was living this way, and I was just praying, God, will you, I don't want to talk to anyone about this. I just want to live this way, and then however you want to use it in someone else's life, just bring them to me and uh, otherwise I'll just kind of have this as a secret thing between you and I. And there was a few conversations that were really pivotal. But I, I felt like God was teaching me a lesson of contentment. And so that came and moved into the second chapter, which which was about purity. I began to notice all the promises in the Bible related to purity. And they're amazing. Probably the most clear is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And I had such a longing To a phrase that Pete has used a lot that um, I just have the same longing, which is I want to look back on my life and it just not make any sense at all unless God is exactly who he says he is. Um, The story that I want to be true of our church is I would love to one day as an old man be brought in to speak at a Christian conference and then say, how did you build this church? And you just say, I have nothing for you to learn from me. It just turns out that God is exactly who he claims to be. Yeah. Yeah. So I would suggest that you just take him up on his promises. <laughs> um, and so, so I just wanted that so badly, and I felt like God began to tell me, like, you will get what you want through purity. I've yeah. promised to give it through purity. And purity is the least sexy aspect of the Christian faith, you know, to, to strip yourself of, self, of like... So I, be, I felt like God was unconforming me to the world. He was calling me to a way of purity that, that wasn't even just avoiding sin. It was just stripping myself of the things of the world that had littered my soul and, and clouded my ability to just receive from God. And it wasn't what he was calling our church to. other people. It was what he was calling me to because it was a desire he had put in my heart and the pathway that he had promised to give that. And that part was really lonely. Like I went through a a long season of loneliness related to this because I was on this journey that I wasn't telling anyone else about apart from my wife and I felt like God was drawing me out and calling me to something different and I I began to honestly lose the ability to relate to my peers very well I would try to talk to them about what I felt like God was doing and it was just like we weren't on the same wavelength and it wasn't because I was more holy than them or anything like that at all it was just like God was doing something different in me. And so I just, I felt like God was drawing me up and he was just asking me to allow him to purify me. And it was a, a lonely part of the journey and that was okay. Um, so I came through that and then I went into chapter
0: three, which, yeah, just stop you. Just one question because we had a conversation with Sam Bailey yesterday and you said something really interesting on, on this subject of purity about the relationship between purity power. Can you just say that a bit before you move to chapter 3? Yes,
1: yeah, so I, I think that purity is the least sexy aspect of the Christian faith, and power is the most sexy. And I think in exactly the way the kingdom would work, they've been paired together. So, and I think it's actually a move that the Spirit is doing right now, larger than just me or our church. I think that across the world, with the pastors that I know, at least I speak to, there seems to be this longing for power. For the power of the Holy Spirit, yeah. and like this weird thing of like, is God calling us to greater purity? <laughs> is God calling our church to be refined in holiness somehow? And I just think God's joining those things together, and He's saying, "I want to pour out my power, but I need to refine you through purity, so that you can be an empty vessel that I like a channel that I can just pour my spirit directly right. through." Is that what you're yeah. referring to? <laughs> so yeah, so I, I think that God is pairing purity and power together right now, and I could be totally wrong, but I don't think I am. <laughs> to be quite honest. <laughs> um, so yeah, then, then I went into what I was sharing the other night. That this period of time where I was, I was just pretty obsessed with Elihu, this character at the end of the book of Job. Um, because I minister in a city full of young men and women. I'm a young man and, and I've lo- I have prayed for years... God, would you just select a godly couple that's been elders at their church forever, that's about to retire next to a golf course in middle America and just cause them to instead move to a hipster neighborhood in Brooklyn that makes no sense because they're going to be a massive part of what you're doing in our church. And God has never answered that prayer and I just felt like God um, really speaking to me through Elihu and just saying, like, you're still a young man but I've called you to be an old man now. And, um, I felt like that was part of what God was doing in me is that He was forming the character of an old man in me while I'm a young man because it's it's part of what He's called me to be to the to the people that He's entrusted me with. And Br- briefly tell
0: know,
1: who who's Elihu. Oh yeah, sorry. At the in Job chapter thirty-seven, Elihu speaks up. It's really interesting. He's been there the entire time. If you know the story, if you've ever read the book of Job, it's basically like eavesdropping. It's like a bunch of horrible things happen to this man and then he's verbally processing, processing them with his friends and you're just listening in on the conversation and you think there's four people in the room. There's actually five the entire book. There's Elihu who just hasn't spoken up. And then finally, chapter 37, he speaks up and it's, a, it's such a powerful little speech he drops. He speaks up and says, I've been sitting here just thinking, hey, I'm the young man in the room. Let the wisdom speak. And then maybe if there's anything for you to add at the end, jump in. And now that I've heard all of you out, I know that there is no wisdom in this room. You're older than me, and yet you do not carry wisdom. And so God is just saying, you have to speak up now. And he just points, he just speaks truth into Job's life. And then the, the greatest thing about Elihu is Job never responds to him. Job just begins <coughs> praying to God. Like the, the effect of the wisdom that he carries is not that... Job ever attributes anything to him. It's just that Job goes directly to God and through the prayer of Job then prays to God we're told that the second half of his life is richer than the first. So that's the effect of this young man with a wisdom that has been hardened within him by God through who knows what means. And I just felt like God telling me I want to give you the anointing of Elihu but again this is the path that I've called you to walk um, in order to receive that. And then there's this final chapter um, that I'm in now. So I, I I remember just before the holidays, I was riding my bike home one evening um, from our church, and I passed by this. Uh, I passed by this brewery, and it was on a Sunday evening. And last, it was the last Sunday evening before Christmas. And last year, the last Sunday evening before Christmas, I'd met a good friend there and had beers with him. And that just immediately came back to me, and I just thought, you know, I really wish I was doing that tonight. And that was weird because I. It's been a long time since the fasting part. It's just like this is just my lifestyle now, so I just haven't thought about the fasting part in a long time. And then I just began talking to God. And I was like, you know, God, I don't, I could so easily coast to the finish line of this thing because it's a 320 day fast and nearing the end. And I don't want to coast to the finish line. I, yeah. Whatever it is that you're still teaching me, I want to be present in every day of it. I want to get every last drop of what you're teaching me through it. So whatever is next, will you please reveal it to me. Um, a couple of days later, it's Christmas Eve. And um, I was on my way to our Christmas Eve service, which I'm preaching at. And the, the subway station next to my apartment is down, so I have to walk to another subway station. And that subway station um, has no place to buy Metro cards, like our version of Oyster cards, to get on the train. And so I go down, and I open up my wallet, and my Metro card is gone, because Kirsten, my wife, had borrowed it a couple days before, and I probably told her seven times, please put it back. And it wasn't there, and so I texted her. I don't know if anyone else sends these texts to their spouse, but it was just a text, not rude. Actually, it was rude,
0: but
1: it wasn't directly rude. It was just to alert her to the fact that she had inconvenience. And I was just like, hey... You didn't put the Metro card back <laughs> in my wallet. And then I hit send. And immediately I hit send, I was just like, gosh, what did I hit send? She's at home with our two children trying to get them ready to go to this church service. She's stressed right now. That was a horrible move. And, and then I, I get above ground. I'm, I'm trying to order an Uber so that I can get there. I'm definitely going to be late. I'm, I'm feeling all these all, I'm annoyed and I'm also like oh, how am I going to exp- I'm always late to everything they're expecting me to be late I'm going to come up with I actually do have an excuse this time I'm preaching at this thing and I'm going to be the last person there and then I look across the street and there is this homeless man who is lying asleep on the corner at four in the afternoon directly across the street from me that's not a rare sight um, where I live but it Suddenly it began occurring to me that I'm going to a Christmas Eve service where I'm going to light candles and celebrate the God who's come into the world with my church family. And then I'm going to come back home. I'm going to pick up a pizza. I'm going to watch Home Alone with my wife. (laughs) I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning, give gifts to my children, get on a plane, fly to my parents' house, be with people that love me. My life is so rich. Something has gone so horribly wrong in this man's life that he's gotten blacked out, intoxicated in the middle of the day on Christmas Eve. And that is just an absolute tragedy. And I started to think, what would Jesus how would he relate to this man in this moment? And I thought, you know, Jesus would cross the street, he would get down on his knees, he would wake this man up, he'd buy him a coffee, he'd buy him a meal. He would take on whatever inconveniences happened to intrude in his life because of this. He would then bring this man to the service because the church is the new family of God in the world for those who don't have a family to be with on Christmas Eve. um, He would share his pizza with them, and his entire night would be totally messed up and inconvenienced by the presence of this guy. It would probably be brutally awkward and not feel amazing at the end of it, and he would do every bit of it with joy. And I just... Lamented the distance between who I am and who Jesus is as I was standing there. And then my Uber came and I got in the car. And I spent the next day just praying and saying, God, I felt the next day that like God began to show me what he was teaching me. And it was to move from the holiness of John to the holiness of Jesus. John the Baptist was holy because of restraint. He lived as a Nazarite his entire life, most people believe um, he went off into the wilderness. He ate very specific things. He was a wild man. Jesus was holy as a glutton and a drunkard because of compassion. Mm. Like Jesus was holiness, meaning set apart from the world. It wasn't because of restraint. It was because of generosity. He so gave himself to other people that he was holy and set apart from the world. And I just felt like God was telling me, you've learned the holiness of John. Now it's time to learn the holiness of Jesus. And so I've just begun praying for opportunities to brutally inconvenience myself on behalf of others. And then Pete asked me to come to London, and I thought, oh, this is it. This is so beautiful. But I, I just began, that's sort of what I'm in the midst of now, is I'm just asking God to teach me the holiness of Jesus, and I couldn't be further from it. But I believe that that's what this vow is about and I don't think I'm going to get there in the next few days but I think that it's what God's turning me to here at the end so that's sort of the journey that I've been on